Hello and welcome to Ideas Matter, the podcast that takes the important issues of our times and explores the ideas and intellectual trends that have helped shape where we are today. I'm Alistair Donald from the Battle of Ideas educational charity, which on Saturday 20th of June will host the event The Academy 2020 with online lectures exploring the theme psychology and democracy. Sadly, this year the coronavirus pandemic will prevent us gathering together physically for what would have been our 10th year of the Academy at Y Boston Lakes. We'll certainly miss the sociability of that occasion. However, we're very pleased that we can still offer the intellectual stimulus associated with the Academy. This will now come in the form of a half-day online event via Zoom. The programme for the Academy Online, Psychology and Democracy, a mixture of lectures and seminars will offer the opportunity to all those who attend to place contemporary events in the historical and philosophical context. Given the endeavours of behavioural science to understand and shape collective behaviour and the concern of those in authority to control the narrative, we will examine why psychological categories have come to occupy such an important role in public life and why intellectuals and social planners are attracted by psychology as a way of explaining decisions and supposed efficiencies of the general public. The event will be bookended by lectures, opening with the frightful crowd, the psychology of the masses, and concluding with scientism and the manufacture of consent, then and now. In between, attendees will have the choice of three seminars in which we turn to literature, reflecting on novels and other works as a means to investigate how psychological theories inspired utopian visions of social order, as well as exacerbating divisions between nature and the unnatural in modern life. As ever, there'll be lots of opportunity to join in the discussion. For further information and details of how to register, and, should you be able to, to make a charitable donation, then do visit our BOI charity website at www.theboi.co.uk and head to the page The Academy Online Psychology and Democracy. As a taster for this year's online event, and to provide some useful context, this episode of Ideas Matter podcast raids the audio archives of the Academy to bring you a lecture from 2013 entitled Man's Inner Nature, self-reflection and being psychological. By highlighting the shifting artistic sensibilities in the early 20th century, this talk explores the journey from society and material reality to introspection. One of the writers featured here, Virginia Woolf, captured the mood well when she remarked that future concerns lay very likely in the dark places of psychology. The lecturer is one of our regular speakers at the Academy, Dr Tim Black, who is the books and essays editor at online magazine Spiked. I think it's almost a cliche to say that literary modernism, I'm thinking here of Marcel Proust's In Search of Lost Time, or Robert Musel's The Man Without Qualities, or indeed Virginia Woolf's The Lighthouse, is marked, defined even, by a turn inwards, a focus on man's inner nature, on the workings of consciousness, on the prison house of subjectivity. Uh, But I do think there's truth to this cliché, that the explosion of formally challenging uh, anti-realist works which began to emerge in the second half of the 19th century, reaching their high point in the interwar years, I think there's truth to the idea that this constellation of literature was marked, uh, and I know it's crude, by a turn inwards, by massive subjectivism. 
However, I think a better understanding of the range uh, of works which constitute uh, literary modernism, why and when they emerged and so on, uh, can be gained by seeing modernism not so much as a turn inwards, but also as a, as a turn away from. Um, and that turn, as I've hinted formally, was away from the conventions and traditions of realist fiction, plot, moments of decision, dramatic dialogue and character uh, development through, uh, through plot and so on. But more importantly, it was a turn away from the ground on which the great 19th century uh, realist fictions flourished, and that ground was social and historical reality, a thoroughly humanised reality in which men were making history. Uh, and I think that's important to remember, uh, uh, because while classical realist writers like Stendhal or Balzac, for instance, were certainly far from being fans of how things were, uh, they, were critical. they were critical realists. Their novels and the conventions of their novels assumed that meaning and truth was to be sought in representing the world out there, in representing men making history. Not in the conditions of their choosing, perhaps, but nevertheless, men making history out there in the world. Remember, it was Stendhal who deployed that classic metaphor for realist fiction, uh, the mirror. A novel is a mirror carried along a high road, he writes in Scarlet and Black. At one moment, it reflects to your vision the azure skies, at another, the mire of the puddles at your feet. And the man who carries this mirror in his pack will be accused of you of being immoral. His mirror shows the mire, and you blame the mirror. Rather, blame that high road upon which the puddle lies, still more the inspector of roads who allows the water to gather and the puddle to form. But something happens to this sort of critical, this, uh, this realist vocation, this mimetic uh, novelistic tradition, this desire to hold up a mirror to reality and objectively reflect the struggles and aspirations of and between people in a specific situation. That is, to misquote Virginia Woolf, on or about June 1848, human character changed. Or to be less flippant about it, the crushing of the, uh, of the revolutionary upsurge which haunted Europe as the Communist Manifesto had it during 1848, the crushing of this movement brought to a head something like an ideological crisis, a spiritual crisis among a largely sort of bourgeois, literary avant-garde. The essential optimism of the pre-1848 era, with dreams of self-governance, equality and liberty still resonant, the heroic age, if you like, of bourgeois thought and deed, of the French Revolution, of German idealism, all this had all but disappeared by the 1850s. Ideas of progress, of a movement towards a better society, a sense that social life could be transformed for the better, such aspirations appear to have withered. To writers and poets, especially those in France, confronted by the, by the farcical nature of Louis Napoleon Bonaparte on the throne, uh, social and historical reality no longer appeared vital. It appeared petrified. It appeared almost absurd. And it's at this point, I think, that you get the stirrings of what we will come to know as modernism. Because it's at this point at which the aesthetic, at which aesthetic modernity separates off from and even turns on social and political modernity. That is, the elements of modernity, you think self-determination, autonomy, start to constitute an aesthetic realm, not just apart from modernity manifesting in the social world, but in opposition to it. The aesthetic becomes the real domain of self-creation, not social life. Make of yourself a work of art, uh, commands Nietzsche in the, in the 1870s. Also, it's at this moment, of course, that the figure many associate with trailblazing modernism, the poet Charles Baudelaire, the creator of Le Fleur de Mal, 1857, and the author of a key modernist text, The Painter of Modern Life, 1863. Hence he emerges at this point. 
Baudelaire's take on post-1848 society is revealing. He describes it as wholly worn out, worse than worn out, brutalised and greedy, wholly repelled by fiction, adoring only material possessions. There you have it, I think. On the one side, society, brutalised and greedy, materialistic, and on the other side, art, or fiction, as, uh, as Baudelaire has it. And this is a key moment. To repeat myself, a crucial cleavage is emerging, one that is essential to the development of modernism. Art, the aesthetic as an ideal, presented here as fiction, is seen in opposition to brutal, greedy, dispiriting society. In England, you can see such sentiments appear in the work of, say, someone like Walter Pater, and later the so-called sort of decadent poets, a chief associate of whom was, as you will all know, Oscar Wilde, who famously declared that all art is useless, which I think can be read as a riposte, if you like, to the crude instrumentalism uh, of, uh, of, of, of social life. And you see this again in the novels of Flaubert. Yes, his work is characterised by what looks like an attention to realistic detail. Flaubert, after all, is famed for his precision, his dedication to, uh, to a naturalistic portrayal of reality. But the result is not realism as it emerged in the work of his pre-1848 antecedents. Their fictional worlds were full of life, their characters were full of potential, of becoming. Rather, Flaubert's work presents us with a deadening, dispirited, futureless world of imbecile, petty bourgeois convention. Every aspect of the world of Madame Bovary, for instance, is cast in the light of Flaubert's disdain. Even the semi-tragic figure of Emma herself, whose misfortune it was to have believed in the romantic ideals of sort of penny-dreadful poetry, is trapped in this static, issueless world. Flaubert simply doesn't identify with this reality, with the mores, aspirations and social conventions he describes. He's estranged from it. In his own words, I've always tried to live in an ivory tower, but this tide of shit is beating at its walls to undermine it. And what is this ivory tower? It's an incredibly fetishised notion of art. The point I'm labouring to make here is that the modernist moment was born from a profound crisis of meaning, an estrangement of the writer, of literature, from the trajectory of social and political reality and the mimetic traditions that went with representing that reality. Hence, the modernist moment is sometimes talked about as a crisis of representation of what it was that was to be represented. The turbulent interaction of men no longer appeared meaningful. It appeared crude, dominated at best by commercial rationale that, really, that didn't really appear to be all that rational. And this is why I think the modernist works of literature are characterised by their attention to form and that perpetual, to, that perpetual drive to, to innovate formally, to find new ways to capture and convey meaning, truth, the essence of it all. And that's because the modern writer was having to create and forge the meaning that reality, as far as they were concerned, no longer yielded. Their only resource was subjectivity, the self. We saw, yes, it, the Romantics struggled with this too, but they still had recourse to nature uh, and to a rural agricultural way of life. At the end of Swan's Way, the first volume of Marcel Proust's In Search of Lost Time, published in 1913, the narrator Marcel is surveying the present. He sees the motor cars, he sees the latest fashions, the great ornamental boons, if you like, of modernity, and it means nothing to him. Proust writes, This scene seemed to proclaim the inhuman emptiness of this deconsecrated forest and helped me to understand how paradoxical it is to seek in reality for the pictures that are stored in one's memory. And this, of course, is what Bruce did. He didn't seek truth in reality, in things out there, in the world out there. He sought truth in the subjective experience of things. And even that's not quite right. He sought truth in the recollection of the subjective experience of things. 
He turned his voluntary memory, as the philosopher Henri Bergson had it, upon his involuntary memory. And from that storehouse of subjective experience, he managed to weave meaning, to weave the essence of his life into an immeasurably rich tapestry of reminiscence into, into his art. And it's here, finally, with Proust, that we come at last to Virginia Woolf and to the lighthouse. Now, Woolf's admiration for Proust is well established. In the Times Literary, in the Times Literary Supplement in 1922, uh, she wrote a piece about Henry James. Uh, and towards the end of, uh, of the piece, uh, she states, The years have mounted up since James's last novels. We may expect the novel to change and develop as it is explored by the most vigorous minds of a very complex age. What have we not, indeed, to expect from Monsieur Proust alone? As it turned out, not very much, because Proust died a few weeks later. In 1927, in a letter to Wolfe's sister, Vanessa Bell, Wolfe is, is unequivocal in a praise for Proust. Proust is by far the greatest modern novelist. And I think Wolfe recognised in Proust her own aspirations, I think. Uh, his work confirmed the rectitude of what she aspired towards, a type of fiction, a type of novel that wasn't grounded in the representation of exterior happenings, that wasn't a plot-driven descriptive narrative that didn't concern itself with the social significance of buttons on a raincoat. Rather, for Wolfe, as it was for Proust, the important thing, the essential thing, was an individual's consciousness in the, in the act of making meaning from experience. That was where the truth lay. That was where the essence of things happened. Not in the description of the clothes someone wears or the house they live in. No, the essential thing is the infinite universe of the interior, the place where the meaning and significance of things and people is generated, where one forms impressions of things. That is, to the materialism, the staid conventional realism of contemporary writers like John Goldsworthy and especially poor old Arnold Bennett, who she never fails to have a, a bad word for. She wants to write from the inside out. This isn't simply a question of taste. Uh, Wolfe doesn't simply dislike the way the materialists, as, as, as she calls Goldsworthy, H.G. Wells and Bennett. She doesn't simply dislike the way they write. Uh, there's something wrong with it too. Materialism or realism, as she sees it, is, is inadequate to the demands and the situation of the modern writer. That's how she frames the problems in the essay Modern Fiction. So why, why is materialism or realism felt to be inadequate? Now, going back, if the crushing of the 1848 revolutions and in France the coup and restoration to the throne of a gross mediocrity like uh, uh, Louis-Napoleon Bonaparte turned many French writers not only against reality but the literary form it had underpinned, uh, realism, then there's an equally symbolic breaking point for Wolfe and certain of her uh, uh, Anglophone uh, contemporaries, namely the First World War. After this event, to seek meaning and truth in the external world, one that to Wolfe appeared to have sunk into barbarism, was nonsensical. So, into the lighthouse, during the time passes section, that's the, that, that's the kind of the, the uh, middle section, which is effectively a portrait of objective time, a narrative of things happening, noticeably apart from any sort of human subjectivity. The human world appears during this section only in parentheses. In this section, Wolfe plays upon the inclination to see meaning, purpose and value in the external world, you know, the pathetic fallacy. She even references the realist meta metaphor of choice, the mirror. In these mirrors, she writes, the minds of men in these pools of uneasy water in which clouds forever turn and shadows form, dreams perished, and it was impossible to resist the strange intimation which every gull, flower, tree, man and woman and the whole earth itself seemed to declare. The good triumphs, happiness prevails, order rules. 
But this illusion, uh, this illusion of truth, of, of meaning being uh, embodied in the external world, is ruined. Barbarism, unreason, uh, unreason intrudes upon the scene. A shell explodes, she writes, and later a fighter plane's entrails appear, an ashen-coloured strip, a purple stain upon the surface of the sky. You see, to see in the world out there, to see in nature or history something meaningful and purposeful unfolding, something on which to ground art, to ground Wolf's art, on which to ground a novel, in which to see order or good, was no longer an option for Wolf. She writes, to pace the beach was impossible, contemplation unendurable, and this is key, the mirror was broken. So what happens into the lighthouse? How does Wolf write without recourse to the mirror? The mirror is still there, of course. There is, to all intents and purposes, a plotted story into the lighthouse. Characters doing things in an objective situation, in this case a holiday cottage on the Isle of Skye. Uh, and it's an incredible story, so it's, it's a real thrill ride. A little boy, James, wants to go to the lighthouse. His mum, Mrs Ramsey, wants him to go to the lighthouse, but his dad, Mr Ramsey, says they can't go to the lighthouse. They don't go to the lighthouse. Mrs Ramsey dies, years pass. They go back to the holiday cottage. Uh, James wants to go to the lighthouse. Mr Ramsey says they can go to the lighthouse. They go to the lighthouse at the end. Um, but, of course, that's not really what is important, except symbolically... Wolf doesn't concern herself with external events. They are entirely subordinate to the subjective interior space where time can, spand, uh, can expand to an, to an eternity. The exterior is entirely subordinate to the interior. What a character is doing, sewing up a, bro, a brown stocking, reading a book, even attempting to paint, as Lily Briscoe seems to be doing throughout. These are little more than hooks on which Wolf hangs these lyrical swoops into what she believes is really important, the streaming and eddying of multiple human consciousness. Consciousnesses. That is Wolf's subject, it seems, this subterranean psychic life out of which individual characters rise up before sinking back down again. Little wonder that the waves is Wolf's metaphor of choice. It's, it captures this non-visible, this dark psychological reality, its movements and its rhythms. And the result of Wolf's focus on this dark interior life is not only an incredible triumph of literary form, forging significance uh, from the stuff of from the linguistic stuff of consciousness, it's mesmerising a mesmerising kaleidoscopic world of multiple interiorities, from William Banks to Lady Briscoe, from Charles Tanley uh, to Mrs. Ramsay herself, each offering us their own window onto the uh, onto the other characters. There's no objective truth here, of course, only bounded perspectives, like a cubist painting revealing the appearance of an object only at multiple angles. In a single paragraph, the locus of Wolf's stream of consciousness will switch. It might be Lily Briscoe admiring Mr. Ramsey's intellectual strength, then suddenly it might be his son James resenting his father's needy tyranny. There is, of course, more to it than that. Wolfe is not exploring this subterranean psychic life for its own sake any more than Proust was. She's not a, she's not a neuroscientist or a, or a psychologist. She's not actually trying to understand how the mind works. Rather, what you have into the lighthouse is the attempt to create art, the attempt to create something meaningful without recourse to an external referent, nature or objective truth. It's an attempt to wrest meaning from within subjectivity itself, which, I've, uh, which as I've tried to suggest, characterises the modernist moment. And this drama, this crisis of meaning, this struggle for meaning, is actually played out into the lighthouse. And it works like this. Mrs Ramsey is the dominant consciousness of the first section. In relation to her and through her, all others seem to find their place. She's the repository of feeling, of sentiment, as opposed to the rather sort of harsh, prosaic reason of a philosopher, rather, of a philosopher husband, a kind of 
uh, macho archetype, Mr. Ramsey. Seen in the consciousness of others, she is an enchanting force in the strong sense of giving meaning. Hence, we learn constantly of her beauty. At one point, we are told, uh, we hear of Mrs. Ramsey, uh, that uh, the whole effort of merging and flowing and creating rested on her. But in one of the most perfunctory deaths in literary history, Mrs. Ramsey, Mrs. Ramsey is suddenly taken out of the novel. The creative force, the figure in whom the others find meaning and succour, is now absent. The absence, that lack of meaning, is the prompt in the final section, The Lighthouse, for an attempt to forge meaning in the absence of she who provided it. So firstly, Mr. Ramsey and his two resentful children do actually commence and complete the journey to the lighthouse. And secondly, artist Lily Briscoe, the kind of wolf archetype in the novel, attempts to finish her painting to express something in the absence of, to quote Samuel Beckett, anything to express, in the absence of the creative authority, which was Mrs. Ramsey. At one point, Lily confronts the canvas in the final section and reflects, what did it mean? Could things thrust their hands up and grip one? Could the blade cut the first grasp? Was there no safety, no learning by heart of the ways of the world, no guide, no shelter, but always miracle and leaping from the pinnacle of a tower into the air? Lily wants the world to have meaning. She wants the world before the mirror was broken, before Mrs. Ramsey died, uh, before the First First World War broke out. And in the absence of a muse, of something external to herself, Wolf writes... If Lily shouted loud enough, Mrs. Ramsey would return. Mrs. Ramsey, she said aloud. Mrs. Ramsey. The tears ran down her face. But there's a reckoning. So just as Mr. Ramsey and his grown-up children are pushing on to the lighthouse, so Lily pushes on with her painting. She recognises that what she needs to do, which is what Wolf has already done, is to get hold of that luminescent halo of life, as, uh, as, as Wolf describes it in uh, modern fiction. Our subjective experience of things, our consciousness... Wolf writes that what Lily wished to get hold of was that very jar on the nerves, the thing itself before it had been made anything. Get that and start afresh. Get that and start afresh, she said desperately, pitching herself firmly again before the easel. It was a miserable machine, an inefficient machine, she thought, the human apparatus for painting or for feeling. It always broke down at the critical moment. Heroically, one must force it on. Again, the Samuel sort of Beckett-like sentiment is striking. And so the novel ends with the painting finished and the trip to the lighthouse completed. And this is the key. Well, is it the key? I'm not sure. This is the key. The novel has completed itself. Lily has finished her picture and in doing so has explained and justified Wolfe's approach to the novel. Wolfe has given us what she promised in modern fiction, an expression of the varying, the unknown and uncircumscribed spirit, whatever the aberration or complexity it may display with as little mixture of the alien and external as possible. Now, I think there is a bleakness in Wolf too, a sense of failure, but I'm just going to leave that hanging there. I'm going to switch focus now and look at a almost exact contemporary of Virginia Woolf. I'm talking, of course, of Franz Kafka, who was born in 1883, uh, a year after Woolf. Now, Kafka is quite a, th- a, quite a significant figure, I think it's fair to say. Uh, according to one of the many recent biographies of Kafka, after Shakespeare, no other author generates more PhDs, monographs, critical studies and coffee table books than Franz Kafka. His name is also an all-purpose adjective, Kafkaesque. It's used for any situation in which someone feels frustrated by the actions of some organisation or other. It doesn't have to be some old Eastern Bloc state bureaucracy. It could be Marks and Spencer Customer Service Department <laughs> or the leaky Edward Snowden stuck in a Moscow airport. They're all too easily labelled Kafkaesque situations. And it's a bit of a problem. Kafka is a phenomenon, uh, a writer who, um, who can seem impossible to read because it feels like he's already been read for us. 
uh, that we already know what he's saying before he said it. Uh, but I think it's necessary to attempt to do that, to read him afresh. Now, I think the first thing that's noticeable, certainly in the context of, uh, of modernism and the inward turn, or being psycholo- psychological, as the uh, lecture title has it, is how ostensibly realistic Kafka's work is. There's little in the way of interiority as regards Kafka's characters, uh, and certainly nothing like a stream of consciousness. In fact, many of the techniques and tropes associated with modernist works are entirely absent in Kafka. Instead, you get incredibly detailed descriptions of offices, musty courtrooms, cramped attic spaces, cathedrals, and his attention to the physical details of characters is pronounced too, be it the men with the beards like claws or hunchbacked officials or these kind of angel whores which seduce Kay at various points. But as Albert Camus argues in the, in the myth of Sisyphus, the realism is illusory, it's unreal. In fact, he writes, it's a spiritual tragedy, this is how Camus puts it, expressed onto the concrete... Kafka's Prague, that old uh, clawing crone who has forced him to yield to a place he barely left throughout his life, is thoroughly allegorised. Its concrete elements are transfigured by Kafka's imagination. They're turned into the signifiers of his own vision. Psychological reality here becomes reality. This is surrealism, if you like, before surrealism, and it's probably a lot better too. His vision of the unanswered quest for truth and meaning is literally realised in the forms of attics, village castles, judiciary halls, office lumber rooms and beetles. So despite appearances, Kafka's very own literary universe, the tremendous world I have inside my head, as he put it, is arguably one of the most intensely subjectivised of all the modernist enterprises. Kafka's particular vision of a crisis of meaning, of the withdrawal of truth, from the world that acts as if it's, it's still present, is transformed or transmogrified into art. But before I get ahead of myself, let's quickly look at the metamorphosis, if that's, if that's possible. Now, this was one of the few works of Kafka's that was actually published during his lifetime. It's the story of Gregor Samsa, who, after some uneasy dreams, wakes up as a big old bug. The first thing that's striking is the black comedy of the situation. Gregor's woken up as a giant beetle, and his first concern, you know, is it horror? Is it what the... F- no... That's the thing about Kafka's world. Nothing is astonishing. So Gregor's first concern upon discovering he's transformed into a beetle, it's being late for work. (laughs) The incredible, the frightening is perfectly normal in Kafka. But obviously it's not just comedic, although, although there is a lot of laughter in the dark with Kafka. It's also incredibly melancholy. Gregor is still, as far as he's concerned, human. He still uses language. He still thinks as a human. It's just he's a He's a beetle. But his family, especially his father, who he still lives with, cannot see this humanity. They can only see the big dung beetle. And they can't communicate with him, nor he with them. And this is what's ingenious. Kafka has almost turned an age-old emotional estrangement between father and son into a physical estrangement. He's given it concrete form. He's given concrete form to an anxiety, a state of mind. Recall the first line, Gregor Samsa awoke from some uneasy dreams one morning to find himself transformed into a, a giant bug. Some uneasy dreams. One of the most interesting themes that emerges here, and it's a prominent theme throughout Kafka's universe, I think, is, uh, is forgetting, a forgetting of Gregor's, of Gregor's uh, humanity in particular, and a forgetting of the past in general. Hence, Gregor's struggle in the metamorphosis is a struggle to remember who he is. So when his sister and mother are, ta- uh, are talking about clearing the room, Kafka writes, he would admittedly be able to crawl all over the place unimpeded, but at the price of rapidly and completely forgetting his human past. Why? He was on the verge of forgetting already, and he'd only been rallied by his hearing his mother's voice again after all this time. 
Nothing was to be removed. It must all stay. The positive influence that the furniture had on his condition was something he could not do without. Much of the furniture prevented him from indulging in his stupid crawling, and that was no disadvantage, but a very good thing. It enabled him, if you like, to remember, to retain his humanity, his sense of himself. But his sister insists, and the furniture goes, and eventually Gregor himself forgets himself, acquiesces and dies like a beetle. And the response of Gregor's father, he says to his wife and daughter, forget the past, can't we? This idea that we've forgotten something, that we've lost something, brings us to Kafka's novels. Now, unlike the metamorphosis, neither the castle nor the trial were published during Kafka's lifetime. The part that was was the first section of America, the Stoker. Now, there's a good reason why the trial or the castle weren't published. As I'm sure you all know, they weren't finished. Uh, The castle ends mid-sentence, and the order of the chapters in the trial was decided by Kafka's literary executioner, Max Broad. You read it, and there's little relation between the chapters. You read the trial, that is. Each could stand alone. Uh, that could never happen with a work of realism. You couldn't just fiddle around, the, fiddle around with the chapters of old Gorio. But in some ways, that doesn't matter. Kafka's novels weren't plot-driven. Rather, they were allegories pointing towards their own transcendence. The point, be it access to the law or access to the castle administration, that would suddenly sort of fill Kafka's world with truth, that would resolve the questions pursued. But, of course, that point never arrives, and it never can They are allegories for which there is no transcendence, for which the only ground of meaning, such as the nature of modernism, is Kafka himself. He can quest after meaning, indeed he has to, but he refuses to provide it for himself. He refuses to invent it. He refuses to do, in some ways, what certain more right-wing, if if that's the right word, modernisms ended up doing, which, following Nietzsche's call, they tended towards myth-making. They tended to want to sort of invent a transcendence to collapse solitary angst, uh, angsty self-consciousness into some sort of grand, legitimising story. Uh, it could be the sacrifice of the self to the blood and soil of kind of racial mythology or, or sacrificing the self to the forward march of technology, as in futurism, which I think, is a, I think someone's talking about uh, at this very moment. So the lack of an ending, the absence of a definitive ending, not only makes little difference, nothing is going to be revealed, even if there was an ending. Kafka's novels are almost objectively unfinishable. The external authority, the truth which might complete them, is absent. In the words of the court painter Titarelli to Joseph Kay on whether he could be acquitted, he says, Only the highest court, which is utterly inaccessible to you, me, and all of us, has that authority. Kafka Kay can seek access to the law in search of an explanation for his life, indeed for his trial, or he can seek access to the castle in search of a role for his life, but the access itself, the transcendence, is denied him. There is infinite hope, said Kafka de Broad, but not for us. Kafka does not indulge in myth-making. He refuses to indulge in myth-making. And this takes me back to forgetting. In Kafka's universe, especially in the trial, there is a sense that something has been forgotten, something has been lost. The left-wing critic, Walter Benjamin, said that Kafka presents us with the sickening of tradition. In other words, the reason for the way things are done, the age-old ground for authority, the truths which have been transmitted through the ages are almost forgotten in Kafka's world. This is why the law, as Titorelli tells Joseph Kay, is in every attic. And why? Because an attic is where people put things they don't use uh, and forget about them. And that's a key element. We no longer know the reason why. We no longer have access to the meaning of things. 
And here comes the terrorising part of Kafka, the bit that almost seems prophetic, which many people have interpreted as being prophetic. In the absence of knowing why, of knowing the rules by which one might live, the law, in the absence of grasping the real as rational, as Hegel put it, earthly authority acquires an arbitrary form. Forces are dictating Kay's life, but they appear unfathomable, unfathomable without rhyme or reason. In the words of the prison chaplain in the final chapter of the trial, you do not have to consider everything true, you merely have to consider it necessary. Organs of earthly authority, be they officials or fathers or judges, they're always weak initially, but suddenly capable of feats of strength. And they offer only one solution, and it's dog-like submission. An image which recurs throughout the trial and in the penal colony with the, dog, with the accused dog-like before the executioner. And I'm going to end now, I think. Kafka provides us with an image uh, of the world bereft of meaning, of a world that has forgotten meaning. And I think that's important. But like Wolfe does with Lily Briscoe into the lighthouse, he also provides us with an image of permanent searching, of striving for meaning. And I think that in that duality, that struggle for meaning in a world which denies it, which we have in the modernist predicament. And I think in many ways that this partially explains the continued resonance of works which are difficult and often disconsoling. Their predicament, in some ways, is still our predicament. The crisis to which modernism addressed itself, reaching its high point, if you like, during the interwar years, in some ways is still our crisis. You've been listening to Dr Tim Black give the lecture Man's Inner Nature, Self-Reflection and Being Psychological. The lecture is from the Academy Archives and dates from the summer of 2013. If you would like to attend this year's Academy Online, Psychology and Democracy, which takes place via Zoom on Saturday 20th June, then please do join us by registering via our website www.theboi.co.uk. There you will find details of all the lectures and seminars, as well as some suggested background reading. I very much hope you can join us on June the 20th. An Ideas Matter podcast will return next week with a further lecture from the Academy Archives. Music